At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, Chapter 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, edited by Frank Woodworth Pine. Chapter 10. Poor Richard's Almanac and Other Activities. In 1732 I first published my almanac under the name of Richard Saunders. It was continued by me about twenty-five years, commonly called Poor Richard's Almanac. I endeavored to make it both entertaining and useful, and it accordingly came to be in such demand that I reaped considerable profit from it, vending annually near ten thousand, and observing that it was generally read scarce any neighborhood in the province being without it. I considered it as a proper vehicle for conveying instruction among the common people, who bought scarcely any other books. I therefore filled all the little spaces that occurred between the remarkable days in the calendar with proverbial sentences, chiefly such as inculcated industry and frugality as the means of procuring wealth, and thereby securing virtue, it being more difficult for a man in want to act always honestly, as, to use here one of those proverbs, it is hard for an empty sack to stand upright. Begin footnote. The almanac at that time was a kind of periodical, as well as a guide to natural phenomena and the weather. Franklin took his title from Poor Robin, a famous English almanac, and from Richard Saunders, a well-known almanac publisher. End of footnote. These proverbs, which contained the wisdom of many ages and nations, I assembled and formed into a connected discourse prefixed to the almanac of 1757, as the harangue of a wise old man to the people attending an auction. The bringing all these scattered counsels thus into a focus enabled them to make greater impression. The piece being universally approved, was copied in all the newspapers of the continent, reprinted in Britain on a broadside, to be struck up in houses, 
two translations were made of it in french and great numbers bought by the clergy and gentry to distribute gratis among their poor parishioners and tenants in pennsylvania as it discouraged useless expense in foreign superfluities some thought it had its share of influence in producing that growing plenty of money which was observable for several years after its publication i considered my newspaper also as another means of communicating instruction and in that view frequently reprinted in it extracts from the spectator and other moral writers and sometimes published little pieces of my own which had been first composed for reading in our junto of these are a socratic dialogue tending to prove that whatever might be his parts and abilities a vicious man could not properly be called a man of sense and a discourse on self-denial showing that virtue was not secure till its practice became a habitude and was free from the opposition of contrary inclinations these may be found in the papers about the beginning of seventeen thirty five in the conduct of my newspaper i carefully excluded all libelling and personal abuse which is of late years become so disgraceful to our country whenever i was solicited to insert anything of that kind and the writers pleaded as they generally did the liberty of the press and that a newspaper was like a stage-coach in which any one who could pay had a right to a place my answer was that i would print the piece separately if desired and the author might have as many copies as he pleased to distribute himself but that i would not take upon me to spread his detraction and that having contracted with my subscribers to furnish them with what might be either useful or entertaining i could not fill their papers with private altercations in which they had no concern without doing them manifest injustice now many of our printers make no scruple of gratifying the malice of individuals by false accusations of the fairest characters among ourselves augmenting animosity even to the producing of duels and are moreover so indiscreet as to print scurrilous reflections on the government of neighbouring states and even on the conduct of our best national allies which may be attended with the most pernicious consequences these things i mention as a caution to young printers and that they may be encouraged not to pollute their presses and disgrace their profession by such infamous practices but refuse steadily as they may see by my example that such a course of conduct will not on the whole be injurious to their interests in seventeen thirty three i sent one of my journeymen to charleston south carolina where a printer was wanting i furnished him with a press and letters on an agreement of partnership by which i was to receive one-third of the profits of the business paying one-third of the expense he was a man of learning and honest but ignorant in matters of account and though he sometimes made me remittances i could get no account from him nor any satisfactory state of our partnership while he lived on his decease the business was continued by his widow who being born and bred in holland where 
as I have been informed, the knowledge of accounts makes a part of female education, she not only sent me as clear a state as she could find of the transactions past, but continued to account, with the greatest regularity and exactness, every quarter afterwards, and managed the business with such success, that she not only brought up reputably a family of children, but at the expiration of the term, was able to purchase of me the printing-house, and establish her son in it. I mention this affair chiefly for the sake of recommending that branch of education for our young females, as likely to be of more use to them and their children, in case of widowhood, than either music or dancing, by preserving them from losses by imposition of crafty men, and enabling them to continue, perhaps, a profitable mercantile house, with established correspondence, till a son is grown up fit to undertake, and go on with it, to the lasting advantage and enriching of the family. About the year 1734 there arrived among us from Ireland a young Presbyterian preacher named Hempfill, who delivered with a good voice, and apparently extemporar, most excellent discourses which drew together considerable numbers of different persuasions, who joined in admiring them. Among the rest, I became one of his constant hearers, his sermons pleasing me, as they had little of the dogmatical kind, but inculcated strongly the practice of virtue, or what in the religious style are called good works. Those, however, of our congregation, who considered themselves as orthodox Presbyterians, disapproved his doctrine, and were joined by most of the old clergy, who arraigned him, of heterodoxy before the synod, in order to have him silenced. I became his zealous partisan, and contributed all I could to raise a party in his favour, and we combated for him a while with such hopes of success. There was much scribbling pro and con upon the occasion, and finding that, though an elegant preacher, he was but a poor writer, I lent him my pen and wrote for him two or three pamphlets, and one piece in the Gazette of April, 1735. Those pamphlets, as is generally the case with controversial writings, though eagerly read at the time, were soon out of vogue, and I question whether a single copy of them now exists. During the contest an unlucky occurrence hurt his cause exceedingly. One of our adversaries, having heard him preach a sermon, that was much admired, thought he had somewhere read the sermon before, or at least a part of it. On search he found the part quoted at length in one of the British reviews from a discourse of Dr. Foster's. This detection gave many of our party disgust, who accordingly abandoned his cause and occasioned our more speedy discomfiture in the synod. I stuck by him, however, as I rather approved his giving us good sermons, composed by others, than bad ones of his own manufacture, though the latter was the practice of our common teachers. He afterward acknowledged to me that none of those he preached were his own, adding that his memory was such as enabled him to retain and repeat any sermon after one reading only. On our defeat he left us, in search elsewhere of better fortune, and I quitted the congregation, never joining it after, though I continued many years my subscription for the support of its ministers. 
I had begun in 1733 to study languages. I soon made myself so much a master of the French as to be able to read the books with ease. I then undertook the Italian. An acquaintance who was also learning it used often to tempt me to play chess with him. Finding this took up too much of the time I had to spare for study, I at length refused to play any more, unless on this condition, that the victor in every game should have a right to impose a task, either in parts of the grammar to be got by heart, or in translations, etc., which tasks the vanquished was to perform upon honour before our next meeting. As we played pretty equally, we thus beat one another into that language. I afterwards, with a little painstaking, acquired as much of the Spanish as to read their books also. I have already mentioned that I had only one year's instruction in a Latin school, and that when very young, after which I neglected that language entirely. But when I had attained an acquaintance with the French, Italian, and Spanish, I was surprised to find, on looking over a Latin testament, that I understood so much more of that language than I had imagined, which encouraged me to apply myself again to the study of it, and I met with more success, as those preceding languages had greatly smoothed my way. From these circumstances I have thought that there is some inconsistency in our common mode of teaching languages. We are told that it is proper to begin first with Latin, and, having acquired that, it will be more easy to attain those modern languages which are derived from it. And yet we do not begin with the Greek in order more easily to acquire the Latin. It is true that if you can clamber and get to the top of a staircase without using the steps, you will more easily gain them in descending. But certainly, if you begin with the lowest, you will more easily ascend to the top and I would therefore offer it to the consideration of those who superintend the education of our youth, whether, since many of those who begin with the Latin quit the same after spending some years without having made any great proficiency, and what they have learnt become almost useless, so that their time has been lost. It would not have been better to have begun with the French, proceeding to the Italian, etc., for though after spending the same time they should quit the study of languages and never arrive at the Latin, they would, however, have acquired another tongue or two that, being in modern use, might be serviceable to them in the common life. Begin footnote. The authority of Franklin, the most eminently practical man of his age, in favor of reversing the study of the dead languages till the mind has reached a certain maturity, is confirmed by the confession of one of the most eminent scholars of any age. Our seminaries of learning, says Gibbon, do not exactly correspond with the precept of a Spartan king, that the child should be instructed in the arts which will be useful to the man, since a finished scholar may emerge from the head of Westminster or Eton in total ignorance of the business and conversation of English gentlemen in the latter end of the eighteenth century but these schools may assume the merit of teaching all that they pretend to teach the Latin and Greek languages. End of footnote. After ten years' absence from Boston, and having become easy in my circumstances, I made a journey thither to visit my relations, which I could not sooner well afford. In returning I called at Newport to see my brother, then settled there with his printing-house. Our former differences were forgotten, and 
and our meeting was very cordial and affectionate. He was fast declining in his health, and requested of me that, in case of his death, which he apprehended not far distant, I would take home his son, then but ten years of age, and bring him up to the printing business. This I accordingly performed, sending him a few years to school before I took him into the office. His mother carried on the business till he was grown up, when I assisted him with an assortment of new types, those of his father's being in a manner worn out. Thus it was that I made my brother ample amends for the service I had deprived him of by leaving him so early. In 1736 I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox, taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly, and still regret, that I had not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of parents, who omit that operation, on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing that the regret may be the same either way, and that, therefore, the safer should be chosen. Our club, the Junto, was found so useful and afforded such satisfaction to the members that several were desirous of introducing their friends, which could not well be done without exceeding what we had settled as a convenient number, viz. twelve. We had, from the beginning, made it a rule to keep our institution a secret, which was pretty well observed. The intention was to avoid applications of improper persons for admittance, some of whom, perhaps, we might find it difficult to refuse. I was one of those who were against any addition to our number, but, instead of it, made in writing a proposal that every member separately should endeavour to form a subordinate club, with the same rules respecting queries, etc., and without informing them of the connection to the junto. The advantages proposed were the improvement of so many more young citizens by the use of our institutions, our better acquaintance with the general statements of the inhabitants on any occasion, as the junto member might propose what queries we should desire, and was to report that the junto what passed in his separate club. The promotion of our particular interests in business by more extensive recommendation, and the increase of our influence in public affairs, and our power of doing good, by spreading through the several clubs the sentiment of the junto. This project was approved, and every member undertook to form his club, but they did not all succeed. Five or six only were completed, which were called by different names, as the Vine, the Union, the Band, etc. They were useful to themselves, and afforded us a good deal of amusement, information, and instruction, besides answering in some considerable degree our views of influencing the public opinion on particular occasions, of which I shall give some instances in course of time as they happen. My first promotion was my being chosen in 1736 clerk of the General Assembly. This choice was made that year without opposition, but the year following, when I was again proposed, the choice like that of the members being annual, a new member made a long speech against me, in order to favour some other candidate. I was, however, chosen, which was the most agreeable to me, as, besides the pay for the immediate services clerk, the place gave me a better opportunity of keeping up an interest among the members, which secured to me the business of printing the votes, laws, 
paper money, and other occasional jobs for the public, that on the whole were very profitable. I therefore did not like the opposition of this new member, who was a gentleman of fortune and education, with talents that were likely to give him, in time, great influence in the house, which indeed afterwards happened. I did not, however, aim at gaining his favour by paying any servile respect to him, but after some time took this other method. Having heard that he had in his library a certain very scarce and curious book, I wrote a note to him expressing my desire of perusing that book, and requesting he would do me the favour of lending it to me for a few days. He sent it immediately, and I returned it in about a week, with another note expressing strongly my sense of the favour. When we next met in the house, he spoke to me, which he had never done before, and with great civility, and he ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions, so that we became great friends, and our friendship continued to his death. This is another instance of the truth of an old maxim I had learned, which says, He that has once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another than he whom you yourself have obliged and it shows how much more profitable it is prudently to remove than to resent, return, and continue amicable proceeding. In 1737, Colonel Spotwood, late governor of Virginia, and then postmaster general, being dissatisfied with the conduct of his deputy in Philadelphia, respecting some negligence in rendering, and inexactitude of his accounts, took from him the commission and offered it to me. I accepted it readily, and found it of great advantage, for though the salary was small, it facilitated the correspondence that improved my newspaper, increased the number demanded, as well as the advertisements to be inserted, so that it came to afford me a considerable income. My old competitor's newspaper declined proportionately, and I was satisfied without retaliating his refusal, while postmaster, to permit my papers being carried by the writers. Thus he suffered greatly from his neglect in due accounting, and I mention it as a lesson to those young men who may be employed in managing affairs for others, that they should always render accounts, and make remittances, with great clearness and punctuality. The character of observing such a conduct is the most powerful of all recommendations to new employments and increase of business. End of chapter 10「The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin」Chapter 11 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Edited by Frank Woodworth Pine Chapter 11 Interest in Public Affairs I began now to turn my thoughts a little to public affairs, beginning, however, with small matters. The city watch was one of the first things that I conceived to want regulation. It was managed by the constables of the respective wards in turn. The constable warned a number of housekeepers to attend him for the night. Those who chose never to attend paid him six shillings a year to be excused, which was supposed to be for hiring substitutes, but was, in reality, much more than was necessary for that purpose, and made the constableship a place of profit, and the constable, 
for a little drink, often got such ragamuffins about him as a watch that respectable housekeepers did not choose to mix with. Walking the rounds, too, was often neglected, and most of the nights spent in tippling. I thereupon wrote a paper to be read in Junto, representing these irregularities, but insisting more particularly on the inequality of the six shillings tax of the constables, respecting the circumstances of those who paid it, since a poor widow housekeeper, all whose property to be guarded by the watch, did not perhaps exceed the value of fifty pounds, paid as much as the wealthiest merchant, who had thousands of pounds worth of goods in his stores. On the whole, I proposed as a more effectual watch the hiring of proper men to serve constantly in that business, and as a more equitable way of supporting the charge, the levying of a tax that should be proportioned to the property. This idea, being approved by the Junto, was communicated to the other clubs, but as arising in each of them, and though the plan was not immediately carried into execution, yet by preparing the minds of people for the change, it paved the way for the law obtained a few years after, when the members of our clubs were grown into more influence. About this time I wrote a paper, first to be read in Junto, but it was afterward published, on the different accidents and carelessnesses by which houses were set on fire, with cautions against them, and means proposed to avoiding them. This was much spoken of as a useful piece, and gave rise to a project, which soon followed it, of forming a company for the more readily extinguishing of fires, and mutual assistance in removing and securing of goods when in danger. Associates in this scheme were presently found, amounting to thirty. Our articles of agreement obliged every member to keep always in good order and fit for use a certain number of leather buckets, with strong bags and baskets, for packing and transporting of goods, which were to be brought to every fire, and we agreed to meet once a month and spend a social evening together in discoursing and communicating such ideas as occurred to us upon the subjects of fires as might be useful in our conduct on such occasions. The utility of this institution soon appeared, and many more desiring to be admitted than we thought convenient for one company, they were advised to form another, which was accordingly done, and this went on, one new company being formed after another, till they became so numerous as to include most of the inhabitants who were men of property, and now, at the time of my writing this, though upwards of fifty years since its establishment, that which I first formed, called the Union Fire Company, still subsists and flourishes, though the first members are all deceased but myself and one, who is older by a year than I am. The small fines that have been paid by members for absence at a monthly meeting have been applied to the purchase of fire-engines, ladders, fire-hooks, and other useful implements for each company, so that I question whether there is a city in the world better provided with the means of putting a stop to the beginning conflagrations, and, in fact, since these institutions, the city has never lost by fire, more than one or two houses at a time, and the flames have often been extinguished before the house in which they began has been consumed. 
In 1739, arriving among us from Ireland, the Reverend Mr. Whitfield, who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher, he was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches, but the clergy taking a dislike to him, soon refused him their pulpits, and he was obliged to preach in the fields. The multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous, and it was matter of speculation to me who was one of the number to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers, and how much they admired and respected him, notwithstanding his common abuse of them, by assuring them that they were naturally half-beast and half-devils. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. First being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were going religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Begin footnote. George Whitfield, 1714 to 1770, a celebrated English clergyman and pulpit orator, one of the founders of Methodism. End footnote. And it being found inconvenient to assemble in the open air, subject to its inclemencies, the building of a house to meet in was no sooner proposed, and persons appointed to receive contributions, but sufficient sums were soon received to procure the ground and erect the building, which was one hundred feet long and seventy broad, about the size of Westminster Hall, and the work was carried on with such spirit as to be finished in a much shorter time than could have been expected. Both house and grounds were vested in trustees, expressly for the use of any preacher of any religious persuasion who might desire to say something to the people at Philadelphia. The design in building, not being to accommodate any particular sect, but the inhabitants in general, so that even if the mufti of constantinople were to send a missionary to preach mohammedism to us he would find a pulpit at his service begin footnote a part of the palace of westminster now forming the vestibule to the houses of parliament in london End footnote mr whitfield in leaving us went preaching all the way through the colonies to georgia the settlement of that province had lately been begun, but instead of being made with hardy, industrious husbandmen accustomed to labour, the only people fit for such an enterprise, it was with families of broken shopkeepers and other insolvent debtors, many of indolent and idle habits, taken out of the jails, who, being set down in the woods, unqualified for clearing land, and unable to endure the hardships of a new settlement, perished in numbers, leaving many helpless children unprovided for. The sight of their miserable situation inspired the benevolent heart of Mr. Whitfield, with the idea of building an orphan-house there, in which they might be supported and educated. Returning northward, he preached up this charity, and made large collections for his eloquence had a wonderful power over the hearts and purses of his hearers, of which I myself was an instant. I did not disapprove of the design, but as Georgia was then destitute of materials and workmen, and was proposed to send them from Philadelphia at a great expense, I thought it would have been better to have built the houses here and brought the children to it. Thus I advised. 
but he was resolute in his first project, rejected my counsel, and I therefore refused to contribute. I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistoles in gold. As he proceeded I began to soften, and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and determined to give the silver, and he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. At this sermon there was also one of our club, who, being of my sentiments respecting the building in Georgia, and suspecting a collection might be intended, had by precaution emptied his pockets before he came from home. Toward the conclusion of the discourse, however, he felt a strong desire to give, and applied to a neighbor who stood near him to borrow some money for the purpose. The application was unfortunately made to perhaps the only man in the company who had the firmness not to be affected by the preacher. His answer was, At any other time, friend Hopkinson, I would lend thee freely, but not now, for thee seems to be out of thy right senses. Some of Mr. Whitfield's enemies affected to support that he would apply these collections to his own private emollient, but I, who was intimately acquainted with him, being employed in printing his sermons and journals, etc., never had the least suspicion of his integrity, but am to this day decidedly of opinion that he was in all his conduct a perfectly honest man, and methinks my testimony in his favour ought to have the more weight, as we had no religious connection. He used, indeed, sometimes to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Ours was a mere civil friendship, sincere on both sides, and lasted to his death. The following instance will show something of the terms on which we stood. Upon one of his arrivals from England at Boston, he wrote to me that he should come soon to Philadelphia, but knew not where he could lodge when there, as he understood his old friend and host, Mr. Benizet, was removed to Germantown. My answer was, You know my house. If you can make shift with its scanty accommodations, you will be most heartily welcome. He replied that if I made the kind offer for Christ's sake, I should not miss of a reward, and I returned, Don't let me be mistaken, it was not for Christ's sake, but for your sake. One of our common acquaintances jocosely remarked that, knowing it to be the custom of the saints, when they receive any favour, to shift the burden of the obligation from off their shoulders, and place it in heaven, I was contrived to fix it on earth. The last time I saw Mr. Whitfield was in London, when he consulted me about his orphan-house concern, and his purpose of appropriating to the establishment of a college. He had a loud and clear voice, and articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might be heard and understood at a great distance, especially as his auditors, however numerous, observed the most exact silence. He preached one evening from the top of the courthouse steps, which are in the middle of Market Street, and on the west side of Second Street, which crosses it at right angles. Both streets were filled, with his hearers, to a considerable distance. 
being amongst the hindmost in market street i had the curiosity to learn how far he could be heard by retiring backwards down the street towards the river and i found his voice distinct until i came near front street where some noise in that street obscured it imagining then a semicircle of which my distance would be the radius and that it were filled with auditors to each of whom i allowed two square feet i computed that he might well be heard by more than thirty thousand thus reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to twenty-five thousand people in the fields and to the ancient histories of generals haranguing whole armies of which i had sometimes doubted by hearing him often i came to distinguish easily between sermons newly composed and those which he had often preached in the course of his travels his delivery of the latter was so improved by frequent repetitions that every accent every emphasis every modulation of voice was so perfectly well turned and well placed that without being interested in the subject one could not help being pleased with the discourse a pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music this is an advantage itinerant preachers have over those who are stationary as the latter cannot well improve their delivery of a sermon by so many rehearsals his writing and printing from time to time gave great advantage to his enemies unguarded expressions and even erroneous opinions delivered in preaching might have been afterward explained or qualified by supposing others that might have accompanied them or they might have been denied but litera scripta mene critics attacked his writing violently and with so much appearance of reason as to diminish the number of his votaries and prevent their increase so that i am of opinion if he had never written anything he would have left behind him a much more numerous and important sect and his reputation might in that case have been still growing even after his death as there being nothing of his writing on which to found a censure and give him a lower character his proselytes would be left at liberty to feign for him as great a variety of excellence as their enthusiastic admiration might wish him to have possessed my business was now continually augmenting and my circumstances growing daily easier my newspaper having become very profitable as being for a time almost the only one in this and the neighbouring provinces i experienced too the truth of the observation that after getting the first hundred pound it is more easy to get the second money itself being of a profitable nature the partnership at carolina having succeeded i was encouraged to engage in others and to promote several of my workmen who had behaved well by establishing them with printing-houses in different colonies on the same terms with that in carolina most of them did well being enabled at the end of our term six years to purchase the types of me and go on working for themselves by which meant several families were raised partnerships often finishing quarrel but i was happy in this that mine were all carried on and ended amicably owing i think a good deal to the precaution of having very explicitly settled in our articles everything to be done by or expected from each partner so that there was nothing to dispute which precaution i would therefore recommend to all who enter into partnerships 
for whatever esteem partners may have for and confidence in each other at the time of the contract little jealousies and disgusts may arise with ideas of inequality in the care and burden of the business etc which are attended often with breach of friendship and of connection perhaps with lawsuits and other disagreeable consequences end of chapter eleven the autobiography of benjamin franklin chapter eleven this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the autobiography of benjamin franklin edited by frank woodworth pine chapter twelve defense of the province i had on the whole abundant reason to be satisfied with my being established in pennsylvania there were however two things that i regretted there being no provision for defence nor for a complete education of youth no militia nor any college i therefore in seventeen forty three drew up a proposal for establishing an academy and at that time thinking the rev mr peters who was out of employ a fit person to superintend such an institution i communicated the project to him but he having more profitable views in the service of the proprietaries which succeeded declined the undertaking and not knowing another at that time suitable for such a trust i let the scheme lie a while dormant i succeeded better the next year seventeen forty four in proposing and establishing a philosophical society the paper i wrote for that purpose will be found among my writings when collected with respect to defence spain having been several years at war against great britain and being at length joined by france which brought to us great danger and the laboured and long continued endeavour of our governor thomas to prevail with our quicker assembly to pass a militia law and make other provisions for the security of the province having proved abortive i determined to try what might be done by a voluntary association of people to promote this i first wrote and published a pamphlet entitled plain truth in which i stated our defenceless situation in strong lights with the necessity of union and discipline for our defence and promised to propose in a few days an association to be generally signed for that purpose the pamphlet had a sudden and surprising effect i was called upon for the instrument of association and having settled the draft of it with a few friends i appointed a meeting of the citizens in the large building before mentioned the house was pretty full i had prepared a number of printed copies and provided pens and ink dispersed all over the room i harangued them a little on the subject read the paper and explained it and then distributed the copies which were eagerly signed not the least objection being made when the company separated and the papers were collected we found about twelve hundred hands and other copies being dispersed in the country the subscribers amounted at length to upwards of ten thousand these all furnished themselves as soon as they could with arms formed themselves into companies and regiments chose their officers and met every week to be instructed in the manual exercise and other parts of military discipline the women by subscription among themselves 
provided silk colours, which they presented to the companies, painted with different devices and mottoes, which I supplied. The officers of the companies, composing the Philadelphia Regiment, being met, chose me for their colonel, but, conceiving myself unfit, I declined that station and recommended Mr. Lawrence, a fine person and a man of influence, who was accordingly appointed. I then proposed a lottery to defray the expense of building a battery below the town and furnishing it with cannon. It filled expeditiously, and the battery was soon erected, with Merlin's being framed of logs and filled with earth. We bought some old cannon from Boston, but these not being sufficient, we wrote to England for more, soliciting at the same time our proprietaries for the assistance, though without much expectation of obtaining it. Meanwhile, Colonel Lawrence, William Allen, Allen Taylor, Esquire, and myself were sent to New York by the associators, commissioned to borrow some cannon of Governor Clinton. He first refused us peremptorily, but at dinner with his council, where there was great drinking of Madeira wine, as the custom of that place then was, he softened by degrees and said he would lend us six. After a few more bumpers he advanced to ten, and at length he very good-naturedly conceded eighteen. They were fine cannon, eighteen-pounders, with their carriages, which were soon transported and mounted on our battery, where the associators kept a nightly guard while the war lasted, and among the rest I regularly took my turn of duty there as a common soldier. My activity in these operations was agreeable to the governor and council. They took me into confidence, and I was consulted by them in every measure wherein their concurrence was thought useful to the association. Calling in the aid of religion, I proposed to them the proclaiming a fast to promote reformation and implore the blessing of heaven on our undertaking. They embraced the motion, but as it was the first fast ever thought of in the province, the secretary had no precedent from which to draw the proclamation. My education in New England, where a fast is proclaimed every year, was here of some advantage. I drew it in the accustomed style. It was translated into German, printed in both languages, and divulged through the province. This gave the clergy of the different sects an opportunity of influencing their congregation to join in the association, and it would probably have been general among all but Quakers if the peace had not soon intervened. Begin footnote. William Penn's agents sought recruits for the colony of Pennsylvania in the low countries of Germany, and there are still in eastern Pennsylvania many Germans, inaccurately called Pennsylvania Dutch. Many of them use a Germanized English. End of footnote. It was thought by some of my friends that by my activity in these affairs I should offend that sect, and thereby lose my interest in the assembly of the province, where they formed a great majority. A young gentleman, who had likewise some friends in the house, and wished to succeed me as their clerk, acquainted me that it was decided to displace me at the next election, and he therefore in good will advised me to resign as more consistent with my honour than being turned out. My answer to him was that I had read or heard of some public man who had made it a rule never to ask for an office, and never to refuse one when offered to him. I approve, says I, of his rule, 
and will practice it with a small addition. I shall never ask, never refuse, nor ever resign an office. If they will have my office of clerk to dispose of to another, they shall take it from me. I will not, by giving it up, lose my right of some time or other making reprisals on my adversaries. I heard, however, no more of this. I was chosen again unanimously, as usual, at the next election. Possibly, as they disliked my late intimacy with the members of council, who had joined the governors in all the disputes about military preparations, with which the house had long been harassed, they might have been pleased if I would voluntarily have left them. But they did not care to displace me on account merely of my zeal for the association, and they could not well give another reason. Indeed, I had some cause to believe that the defense of the country was not disagreeable to any of them, provided they were not required to assist in it, and I found that a much greater number of them than I could have imagined, though against offensive war, were clearly for the defensive. My pamphlets, pro and con, were published on the subject, and some by good Quakers in favor of defense, which I believe convinced most of their younger people. A transaction in our fire company gave me some insight into their prevailing sentiments. It had been supposed that we should encourage the scheme for building a battery by laying out the present stock, then about sixty pounds, in tickets of the lottery. By our rules, no money could be disposed of till the next meeting after the proposal. The company consisted of thirty members, of which twenty-two were Quakers, and eight only of other persuasions. We eight punctuously attended the meetings, but though we thought that some of the Quakers would join us, we were by no means sure of a majority. Only one Quaker, Mr. James Morris, appeared to oppose the measure. He expressed much sorrow that it had ever been proposed, as he said, friends were all against it, and it would create such discord as might break up the company. We told him that we saw no reason for that. We were the minority, and, if friends were against the measure, and outvoted us, we must and should agreeably to the usage of all societies submit when the hour for business arrived and was moved to put to the vote he allowed we might then do it by the rules but as he could assure us that a number of members intended to be present for the purpose of opposing it it would be but candid to allow a little time for their appearing while we were disputing this a waiter came to tell me two gentlemen below desired to speak with me I went down and found they were two of our Quaker members. They told me there were eight of them assembled at a tavern just by, and that they were determined to come and vote with us if there should be occasion, which they hoped would not be the case, and desired we should not call for their assistance if we could do without it, as their voting for such a measure might embroil them with their elders and friends. Being thus secure of a majority, I went up, and after a little seeming hesitation, agreed to a delay of another hour. This Mr. Morris allowed to be extremely fair. Not one of his opposing friends appeared, at which he expressed great surprise, and at the expiration of the hour we carried the resolution eight to one, and as of the twenty-two Quakers, eight were ready to vote with us, and thirteen by their absence manifested that they were not inclined to oppose the measure. 
I afterward estimated the proportion of Quakers sincerely against the defense as one to twenty-one only, for these were all regular members of that society, and in good reputation among them, and had due notice of what was proposed at that meeting. The honorable and learned Mr. Logan, who had always been of that sect, was one who wrote an address to them, declaring his approbation of defensive war, and supporting his opinion by many strong arguments. He put into my hand sixty pounds to be laid out in lottery tickets for the battery, with directions to apply what prize might be drawn wholly to that service. He told me the following anecdote of his old master, William Penn, respecting defense. He came over from England when a young man, with that proprietary, and as his secretary. It was wartime, and their ship was chased by an armed vessel supposed to be an enemy. Their captain prepared for defense, but told William Penn and his company of Quakers that he did not expect their assistance, and they might retire into the cabin, which they did, except James Logan, who chose to stay upon deck and was quartered to a gun. The supposed enemy proved a friend, and there was no fighting, but when the secretary went down to communicate the intelligence, William Penn rebuked him severely for staying upon deck, and undertaking to assist in defending the vessel, contrary to the principles of friends, especially as it had not been required by the captain. This reproof being before all the company, piqued the secretary who answered, I being thy servant, why did thee not order me to come down? But thee was willing enough that I should stay and help to fight the ship when thee thought there was danger. Begin footnote. James Logan, 1674-1751, came to America with William Penn in 1699, and was the business agent for the Penn family. He bequeathed his valuable library, preserved at his county seat, Senton, to the city of Philadelphia. End footnote. By being many years in the assembly, the majority of which were constantly Quakers, gave me frequent opportunities of seeing the embarrassment given them by their principle against war. Whenever application was made to them, by order of the Crown, to grant aids for military purposes, they were unwilling to offend government on the one hand by a direct refusal, and their friends, the body of the Quakers, on the other, by compliance contrary to their principles hence a variety of evasions to avoid complying, and modes of disguising the compliance when it became unavoidable. The common mode at last was to grant money under the phrase of its being for the king's use, and never to inquire how it was applied. But if the demand was not directly from the crown, that phrase was found not so proper, and some other was to be invented, as when powder was wanting, I think it was for the garrison at Lewisburg, and the government of New England solicited a grant of some from Pennsylvania, which was much urged on the house by Governor Thomas. They could not grant money to buy powder, because that was an ingredient of war, but they voted an aid to New England of three thousand pounds to be put into the hands of the governor, and appropriated it for the purchase of bread, flour, wheat, or other grain some of the council desirous of giving the house still further embarrassment, advised the governor not to accept provision, as not being the thing he had demanded, but he replied, I shall take the money, 
I understand very well their meaning. Other grain is gunpowder, which he accordingly bought, and they never objected to it. It was an allusion to this fact that, when in our fire company, we feared the success of our proposal in favour of the lottery, and I had said to my friend Mr. Singh, one of our members, if we fail, let us move the purchase of a fire engine with the money. The Quakers can have no objection to that. And then, if you nominate me, and I you, as a committee for that purpose, we will buy a great gun, which is certainly a fire engine. I see, says he, you have improved by being so long in the assembly. Your equivocal project would be just a match for their wheat or other grain. These embarrassments that the Quakers suffered from having established and published it as one of their principles that no kind of war was lawful, and which being once published they could not afterwards, however they might change their mind, easily get rid of, reminds me of what I think a more prudent conduct in another sect among us, that of the Dunkers. I was acquainted with one of its founders, Michael Welfare, soon after it appeared. He complained to me that they were grievously calumated by the zealots of other persuasions, and charged with the abominable principles and practices to which they were utter strangers. I told him this had always been the case with new sects, and that to put a stop to such abuse, I imagined it might be well to publish the articles of their belief, and the rules of their discipline. He said it had been proposed among them, but not agreed to for this reason. When we were first drawn together as a society, he said, it had pleased God to enlighten our minds so far as to see some doctrines which we once esteemed truths were errors, and that others, which we had esteemed errors, were real truths. From time to time he has been pleased to afford us further light, and our principles have been improving and our errors diminishing. Now we are not sure that we are arrived at the end of this progression, and at the perfection of spiritual or theological knowledge, and we fear that, if we should once print our confession of faith, we should feel ourselves as if bound and confirmed by it, and perhaps be unwilling to receive further improvement, and our successors still more so, as conceiving what we, their elders and founders, have done, to be something sacred, never to be departed from. This modesty in a sect is perhaps a singular instance in the history of mankind. Every other sect, supposing itself in possession of all truth, and that those who differ are so far in the wrong, like a man travelling in foggy weather, those at some distance before him on the road he sees wrapped up in the fog, as well as those behind him, and also the people in the fields on each side, but near him all appears clear, though in truth he is as much in the fog as any of them. To avoid this kind of embarrassment, the Quakers have of late years been gradually declining the public service in the assembly and in the magistracy, choosing rather to quit their power than their principle. In order of time I should have mentioned before that, having in 1742 invented an open stove for the better warming of rooms, and at the same time saving fuel, as the fresh air admitted was warmed in entering, I made a present of the model to Mr. Robert Grace, one of my early friends, who, having an iron furnace, found the casting of the plates 
for these stoves a profitable thing, as they were growing in demand. To promote that demand I wrote and published a pamphlet entitled An Account of the New Invented Pennsylvania Fireplaces, wherein their construction and manner of operation is particularly explained, their advantages above every other method of warming rooms demonstrated, and all objections that have been raised against the use of them answered and obviated, etc. This pamphlet had a good effect. Governor Thomas was so pleased with the construction of this stove, as described in it, that he offered to give me a patent for the sole vending of them for a term of years, but I declined it from a principle which has ever weighed with me on such occasions, viz., that as we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours, and thus we should do freely and generously. Begin footnote. The Franklin stove is still in use. Warwick Furnace, Chester County, Pennsylvania, across the Shishkul River from Potsdam. End footnote. An ironmonger in London, however, assumed a good deal of my pamphlet, and working it up into his own, and making some small changes in the machine, which rather hurt its operation, got a patent for it there, and made, as I was told, a little fortune by it. And this is not the only instance of patents taken out for my inventions by others, though not always with the same success, which I never contested, as having no desire of profiting by patents myself and hating disputes. The use of these fireplaces, in very many houses, both of this and the neighboring colonies, has been, and is, a great saving of wood to the inhabitants. End of chapter 12《The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin》Chapter 13 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Edited by Frank Woodworth Pine Chapter 13 Public Services and Duties 1749-1753 peace being concluded, and the association business therefore at an end, I turned my thoughts again to the affair of establishing an academy. The first step I took was to associate in the design of a number of active friends, to whom the Junto furnished a good part. The next was to write and publish a pamphlet entitled, Proposals Relating to the Education of Youth in Pennsylvania. This I distributed among the principal inhabitants gratis, and as soon as I could suppose their minds a little prepared by the perusal of it, I set on foot a subscription for opening and supporting an academy. It was to be paid in quotas yearly for five years. By so dividing it, I judged the subscription might be larger, and I believe it was so, amounting to no less, if I remember right, than five thousand pounds. In the introduction to these proposals, I stated their publication, not as an act of mine, but of some public-spirited gentleman, avoiding as much as I could, according to my usual rule, the presenting myself to the public as the author of any scheme for their benefit. 
the subscribers to carry the project into immediate execution chose out of their numbers twenty-four trustees and appointed mr francis then attorney-general and myself to draw up constitutions for the government of the academy which being done and signed a house was hired masters engaged and the schools opened i think in the same year seventeen forty nine begin footnote trench francis uncle of sir philip francis emigrated from england to maryland to become attorney for lord baltimore he removed to philadelphia and was attorney-general of pennsylvania from seventeen forty one to seventeen fifty five he died in philadelphia august sixteenth seventeen fifty eight end footnote the scholars increasing fast the house was soon found too small and we were looking out for a piece of ground properly situated with intention to build when providence drew to our way a large house already built which with a few alterations might well serve our purpose this was the building before mentioned erected by the hearers of mr whitfield and was obtained for us in the following manner it is to be noted that the contributions to this building being made by people of different sects care was taken in the nomination of trustees in whom the building and ground was to be vested that a predominancy should not be given to any sect least in time that predominancy might be a means of appropriating the whole to the use of such sect contrary to the original intention it was therefore that one of each sect was appointed viz one church of england man one presbyterian one baptist one moravian etc those in case of vacancy by death were filled it by election from among the contributors the moravian happened not to please his colleagues and on his death they resolved to have no other of that sect the difficulty then was how to avoid having two of some other sect by means of the new choice several persons were named and for that reason not agreed to at length one mentioned me with the observation that i was merely an honest man and of no sect at all which prevailed with them to choose me the enthusiasm which existed when the house was built had long since abated and its trustees had not been able to procure fresh contributions for paying the ground rent and discharging some of the other debts the building had occasioned which embarrassed them greatly being now a member of both sets of trustees that for the building and that for the academy i had a good opportunity of negotiating with both and brought them finally to an agreement by which the trustees for the building were to cede it to those of the academy the latter undertaking to discharge the debt to keep forever open in the building a large hall for occasional preachers according to the original intention and maintain a free school for the instruction of poor children writings were accordingly drawn and on paying the debts the trustees of the academy were put in possession of the premises and by dividing the great and lofty hall into stories and different rooms above and below for the several schools and purchasing some additional ground the whole was soon made fit for our purpose and the scholars removed into the building the care and trouble of agreeing with the workmen purchasing materials and superintending the work fell upon me and i went through it the more cheerfully as it did not then interfere with my private business 
having the year before taken a very able industrious and honest partner mr david hall with whose character i was well acquainted as he had worked for me four years he took off my hands all care of the printing office paying me punctually my share of the profits the partnership continued eighteen years successfully for us both the trustees of the academy after a while were incorporated by a charter from the governor their funds were increased by contributions in britain and grants of land from the proprietaries to which the assembly had since made considerable addition and thus was established the present university of philadelphia i have been continued one of its trustees from the beginning now near forty years and have had the very great pleasure of seeing a number of the youth who have received their education in it distinguished by their proven abilities serviceable in public stations and ornaments to their country begin footnote the institution was later called the university of pennsylvania End footnote when i disengaged myself as above mentioned from private business i flattered myself that by the sufficient though moderate fortune i had acquired i had secure leisure during the rest of my life for philosophical studies and amusements i purchased all of dr spence's apparatus who had come from england to lecture here and i proceeded in my electrical experiments with great alacrity but the public now considering me as a man of leisure laid hold of me for their purposes every part of our civil government and almost at the same time imposing some duty upon me the governor put me into the commission of the peace the corporation of the city chose me of the common council and soon after an alderman and the citizens at large chose me a burgess to represent them in assembly this latter station was more agreeable to me as i was at length tired with sitting there to hear debates in which as clerk i could take no part and which were often so unentertaining that i was induced to amuse myself with making magic squares or circles or anything to avoid weariness and i conceived my becoming a member would enlarge my power of doing good i would not however insinuate that my ambition was not flattered by all these promotions it certainly was for considering my low beginning they were great things to me and they were still more pleasing as being so many spontaneous testimonies of the public good opinion and by me entirely unsolicited the office of justice of the peace i tried a little by attending a few courts and sitting on the bench to hear cases but finding that more knowledge of the common law than i possessed was necessary to act in that station with credit i gradually withdrew from it excusing myself by being obliged to attend the higher duties of a legislature in the assembly my election to this trust was repeated every year for ten years without my ever asking any elector for his vote or signifying either directly or indirectly any desire of being chosen on taking my seat in the house my son was appointed their clerk the year following a treaty being held with the indians at carlisle the governor sent a message to the house proposing that they should nominate some of their members to be joined with some members of council as commissioners for that purpose the house named the speaker mr norris and myself and being commissioned we went to carlisle and met the indians accordingly as 
those people are extremely apt to get drunk and when so are very quarrelsome and disorderly we strictly forbade the selling of any liquor to them and when they complained of this restriction we told them that if they would continue sober during the treaty we would give them plenty of rum when business was over they promised this and they kept their promise because they could get no liquor and the treaty was concluded very orderly and concluded to mutual satisfaction they then claimed and received the rum this was in the afternoon they were near one hundred men women and children and were lodged in temporary cabins built in the form of a square just without the town in the evening hearing a great noise among them the commissioners walked out to see what was the matter we found they had made a great bonfire in the middle of the square they were all drunk men and women quarrelling and fighting their dark-coloured bodies half naked seen only by the gloomy light of the bonfire running after and beating one another with firebrands accompanied by their horrid yellings formed a scene the most resembling our ideas of hell that could well be imagined there was no appeasing the tumult and we retired to our lodging at midnight a number of them came thundering at our door demanding more rum of which we took no notice the next day sensible they had misbehaved in giving us that disturbance they sent three of their old counsellors to make their apology the orator acknowledged the fault but laid it upon the rum and then endeavoured to excuse the rum by saying the great spirit who made all things made everything for some use and whatever use he designed anything for that use it should always be put to now when he made rum he said let this be for the indians to get drunk with and it must be so and indeed if it be the design of providence to extirpate these savages in order to make room for cultivators of the earth it seems not improbable that rum may be the appointed means it has already annihilated all the tribes who formerly inhabited the sea-coast in seventeen fifty one dr thomas bond a particular friend of mine conceived the idea of establishing a hospital in philadelphia a very beneficent design which has been ascribed to me but was originally his for the reception and cure of poor sick persons whether inhabitants of the province or strangers he was zealous and active in endeavouring to procure subscriptions for it but the proposal being a novelty in america and at first not well understood he met but with small success at length he came to me with the complaint that he found there was no such thing as carrying a public-spirited project through without my being concerned in it for says he i am often asked by those to whom i propose subscribing have you consulted franklin upon this business and what does he think of it and when i tell them that i have not supposing it rather out of your line they do not subscribe but say they will consider of it i inquire into the nature and probable utility of his scheme and received from him a very satisfactory explanation i not only subscribed to it myself but engaged heartily in the design of procuring subscriptions from others previously however to the solicitation i endeavoured to prepare the minds of the people by writing on the subject in the newspapers which was my usual custom in such cases but which he had omitted the subscriptions afterward were more free and generous but beginning to flag 
I saw they would be insufficient without some assistance from the assembly, and therefore proposed to petition for it, which was done. The country members did not at first relish the project. They objected that it could only be serviceable to the city, and therefore the citizens alone should be at the expense of it, and they doubted whether the citizens themselves generally approved of it. My allegation on the contrary, that it met with such approbation as to leave no doubt of our being able to raise two thousand pounds by voluntary donations, they considered as a most extravagant supposition, and utterly impossible. On this I formed my plan, and asked leave to bring a bill for incorporating the contributions according to the prayer of their petition, and granting them a blank sum of money, which leave was obtained chiefly on the consideration that the house would throw the bill out if they did not like it. I drew it so as to make the important clause a conditioned one, viz., and be it enacted, by the authority aforesaid, that when the said contributions shall have met and chosen their managers and treasurer, and shall have raised by their contributions a capital stock of blank value, the yearly interest of which is to be applied to the accommodating of the sick poor in the said hospital, free of charge, for diet, attendance, advice, and medicines, and shall make the same appear to the satisfaction of the Speaker of the Assembly for the time being, that then it shall and may be lawful for the said Speaker, and he is hereby required to sign an order on the provincial treasurer for the payment of two thousand pounds in two yearly payments to the treasurer of the said hospital to be applied to the founding, building, and furnishing of the same. The condition carried the bill through, for the members who had opposed the grant, and now conceived they might have the credit of being charitable without the expense, agreed to its passage, and then in soliciting subscriptions among the people, we urged the conditional promise of the law as additional motive to give, since every man's donation would be doubled. Thus the clause worked both ways. The subscriptions soon exceeded the requisite sum, and we claimed and received the public gift, which enabled us to carry the design into execution. A convenient and handsome building was soon erected. The institution has by constant experience been found useful, and flourishes to this day, and I do not remember any of my political manoeuvres, the success of which gave me at the time more pleasure, or wherein, after thinking of it, I more easily excused myself for having made some use of cunning. It was about this time that another projector, the Reverend Gilbert Tennant, came to me with a request that I would assist him in procuring a subscription for erecting a new meeting-house. It was to be for use of a congregation he had gathered among the Presbyterians, who were originally disciples of Mr. Whitfield. Unwilling to make myself disagreeable to my fellow-citizen, by too frequent soliciting their contributions, I absolutely refused. He then desired I would furnish him with a list of names of persons I knew by experience to be generous and public-spirited. I thought it would be unbecoming in me, after their kind compliance with my solicitations, to mark them out to be worried by other beggars, and therefore refused also to give him such a list. He then desired I would at least give him my advice. That I will readily do, said I, and in the first place I advise you to apply to all those whom you know will give something. Next, 
to those whom you are uncertain whether they will give anything or not, and show them the list of those who have given, and, lastly, do not neglect those who you are sure will give nothing, for in some of them you may be mistaken. He laughed and thanked me, and said he would take my advice. He did so, for he asked of everybody, and he obtained a much larger sum than he expected, with which he erected the capacious and very elegant meeting-house that stands in Arch Street. Begin footnote. Gilbert Tennant, 1703-1764. Came to America with his father, Reverend William Tennant, and taught for a time in the Log College, from which sprang the College of New Jersey. End footnote. Our city, though laid out with a beautiful regularity, the streets large, straight, and crossing each other at right angles, had the disgrace of suffering those streets to remain long unpaved, and in wet weather bills of heavy carriages ploughed them into a quagmire, so that it was difficult to cross them, and in dry weather the dust was offensive. I had lived near what was called the Jersey Market, and saw with pain the inhabitants wading in mud while purchasing their provisions. A strip of ground down the middle of that market was at least paved with brick, so that being once in the market they had firm footing but were often over shoes in dirt to get there. By talking and writing on the subject, I was at length instrumental in getting the street paved with some stone between the market and the bricked foot pavement that was on each side next to the houses. This, for some time, gave an easy access to the market, dry shod, but the rest of the street not being paved, whenever a carriage came out of the mud upon the pavement, it shook off and left its dirt upon it, and it was soon covered with mire, which was not removed, the city as yet having no scavengers. After some inquiry I found a poor industrious man, who was willing to undertake keeping the pavement clean, by sweeping it twice a week, carrying off the dirt from before all the neighbors' doors, for the sum of sixpence per month, to be paid by each house. I then wrote and printed a paper setting forth the advantages to the neighbourhood that might be obtained by this small expense, the greater ease in keeping our houses clean, so much dirt not being brought in by people's feet, the benefit of the shops by more custom, etc., etc., as buyers could more easily get at them, and by not having, in windy weather, the dust blown in upon their goods, etc., etc., I sent one of these papers to each house, and in a day or two went round to see who would subscribe an agreement to pay these sixpence. It was unanimously signed, and for a time well executed. All the inhabitants of the city were delighted with the cleanliness of the pavement that surrounded the market, it being a convenience to all, and thus raised a general desire to have all the streets paved, and made the people more willing to submit to a tax for that purpose. After some time I drew a bill for paving the city, and brought it into the assembly. It was just before I went to England in 1757, and did not pass until I was gone, and then, with an alteration in the mode of assessment, which I thought not for the better, but with an additional provision for lighting, as well as paving the streets, which was a great improvement. It was by a private person, the late Mr. John Clifton, his giving a sample of the utility of lamps by placing one at his door that the people were first impressed with the idea of enlightening all the city the honour of this public benefit has also been ascribed to me 
but it belongs truly to that gentleman. I did but follow his example, and have only some merit to claim respecting the form of our lamps, as differing from the globe lamps we were at first supplied with from London. Those we found inconvenient in these respects. They admitted no air below. The smoke, therefore, did not readily go out above, but circulated in the globe, lodged on its inside, and soon obstructed the light they were intended to afford, giving, besides, the daily trouble of wiping them clean, and an accidental stroke on one of them would demolish it, and render it totally useless. I therefore suggested the composing them of four flat panes, with a long funnel above to draw up the smoke, and crevices admitting air below, to facilitate the ascent of the smoke. By this means they were kept clean, and did not grow dark in a few hours, as the London lamps do, but continued bright till morning, and an accidental stroke would generally break, but a single pane easily repaired. I have sometimes wondered that the Londoners did not, from the effect holes in the bottom of the globe lamps used at Vaxhall, have, in keeping them clean, learned to have such holes in their street lamps, but these holes being made for another purpose, viz. to communicate flame more suddenly to the wick by a little flax hanging down through them. The other use of letting in air seems not to have been thought of, and therefore, after the lamps had been lit a few hours, the streets of London were very poorly illuminated. Begin footnote. Vaxhall Gardens, once a popular and fashionable London resort, situated on the Thames above Lambeth. The gardens were closed in 1859, but they will always be remembered because of Sir Roger de Coverley's visit to them in The Spectator, and from the description in Smollett's Humphrey Clinker and Thackeray's Vanity Fair. End of footnote. The mention of these improvements puts me in mind of one I proposed when in London to Dr. Fothergill, who was among the best men I have known and a great promoter of useful projects. I had observed that the streets, when dry, were never swept, and the light dust carried away, but it was suffered to accumulate till the wet weather reduced it to mud, and then, after lying some days so deep on the pavement that there was no crossing but in paths kept clear by poor people with brooms, it was, with great labour, raked together and thrown up into carts open above, the sides of which suffered some of the slush at every jolt on the pavement to shake out and fall, sometimes to the annoyance of foot-passengers. The reason given for not sweeping the dusty streets was that the dust would fly into the windows of shops and houses. An accidental occurrence had instructed me how much sweeping might be done in a little time. I found at my door in Craven Street one morning a poor woman sweeping my pavement with a birch broom. She appeared very pale and feeble, and just come out of a fit of sickness. I asked who employed her to sweep there. She said, Nobody, but I am very poor and in distress, and I sweeps before gentlefolks' doors, and hopes they will give me something. I bid her sweep the whole street clean, and I would give her a shilling. This was at nine o'clock. At twelve she came for the shilling. From the slowness I saw at first in her working, I could scarce believe that the work was done so soon, 
and sent my servant to examine it, who reported that the whole street was swept perfectly clean, and all the dust placed in the gutter, which was in the middle, and the next rain washed it quite away, so that pavement and even the kennel were perfectly clean. I then judged that, if that feeble woman could sweep such a street in three hours, a strong active man might have done it in half the time. And here let me remark the convenience of having but one gutter in such a narrow street running down its middle, instead of two, one on each side, near the footway, for where all the rain that falls on a street runs from the sides and meets in the middle, it forms there a current strong enough to wash away all the mud it meets with. But when divided into two channels, it is often too weak to cleanse either, and only makes the mud it finds more fluid, so that the wheels of carriages and feet of horses throw and dash it upon the foot-pavement, which is thereby rendered foul and slippery, and sometimes splash it upon those who are walking. My proposal, communicated to the good doctor, was as follows. For the more effectual cleaning and keeping clean the streets of London and Westminster, it is proposed that the several watchmen be contracted with to have the dust swept up in dry seasons and the mud raked up at other times each in their several streets and lanes of his round that they be furnished with brooms and other proper instruments for these purposes to be kept at their respective stands ready to furnish the poor people they may employ in the service that in the dry summer months the dust will all be swept up into heaps at proper distances before the shops and windows of houses are usually opened when the scavengers with close covered carts shall also carry it away that the mud when raked up be not left in heaps to be spread abroad again by the wheels of carriages and trampling of horses but that the scavengers be provided with bodies of carts not placed high upon wheels but low upon sliders with lattice bottoms which being covered with straw will retain the mud thrown into them and permit the water to drain from it thereby it will become much lighter water making the greatest part of its weight and these bodies of carts to be placed at convenient distances and the mud brought to them in wheelbarrows by remaining there placed till the mud is drained and the horses brought to draw them away i have since had doubts of the practicality of the latter part of this proposal on account of the narrowness of some streets and the difficulty of placing the draining sleds so as not to encumber too much of the passage but i am still of opinion that the former requiring the dust to be swept up and carried away before the shops are open is very practicable in the summer when the days are long for in walking through the strand and fleet street one morning at seven o'clock i observed there was not one shop open though it had been daylight and the sun up above three hours the inhabitants of london choosing voluntarily to live much by candlelight and sleep by sunshine and yet often complain a little absurdly of the duty on candles and the high price of tallow some may think these trifling matters not worth minding or relating but when they consider that though dust blown into the eyes of a single person or into a single shop on a windy day is but of small importance yet the greater number of the instances in a populous city and its frequent repetitions give it weight and consequence 
perhaps they will not censure very severely those who bestow some attention to affairs of this seemingly low nature human felicity is produced not so much by great pieces of good fortune that seldom happen as by little advantages that occur every day thus if you teach a poor young man to shave himself and keep his razor in order you may contribute more to the happiness of his life than in giving him a thousand guineas the money may be soon spent the regret only remaining of having foolishly consumed it but in the other case he escapes the frequent vexation of waiting for barbers and of their sometimes dirty fingers offensive breaths and dull razors he shaves when most convenient to him and enjoys daily the pleasure of its being done with a good instrument with these sentiments i have hazarded the few preceding pages hoping that they may afford hints which some time or other may be useful to a city i love having lived many years in it very happily and perhaps to some of our towns in america having been for some time employed by the postmaster-general of america as his comptroller in regulating several offices and bringing the offices to account i was upon his death in seventeen fifty three appointed jointly with mr william hunter to succeed him by a commission from the postmaster-general in england the american office never had hitherto paid anything to that of britain we were to have six hundred pounds a year between us if we could make that sum out of the profits of the office to do this a variety of improvements were necessary some of these were inevitably at first expensive so that in the first four years the office became above nine hundred pounds in debt to us but it soon after began to repay us and before i was displaced by a freak of the ministers of which i shall speak hereafter we had brought it to yield three times as much clear revenue to the crown as the post office of ireland since that imprudent transaction they have received from it not one farthing the business of the post office occasioned my taking a journey this year to new england where the college of cambridge of their own motion presented me with a degree of master of arts yale college in connecticut had before made me a similar compliment thus without studying in any college i came to partake of their honors they were conferred in consideration of my improvements and discoveries in the electric branch of natural philosophy End of chapter 13The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, edited by Frank Woodworth Pine. Chapter 14 Albany Plan of Union in 1754 war with france being again apprehended a congress of commissioners from the different colonies was by an order of the lords of trade to be assembled at albany there to confer with the chiefs of the six nations concerning the means of defending both their country and ours governor hamilton having received this order acquainted the house with it requested they should furnish proper presents for the indians to be given on this occasion and naming the speaker mr norris and myself to join mr thomas penn and mr secretary peters as commissioners to act for pennsylvania 
the house approved the nomination and provided the goods for the present and though they did not much like treating out of the provinces and we met the other commissioners at albany about the middle of june in our way thither i projected and drew a plan for the union of all the colonies under one government so far as might be necessary for defence and other important general purposes as we passed through new york i had there shown my project to mr james alexander and mr kennedy two gentlemen of great knowledge in public affairs and being fortified by their approbation i ventured to lay it before the congress it then appeared that several of the commissioners had formed plans of the same kind a previous question was first taken whether a union should be established which passed in the affirmative unanimously a committee was then appointed one member from each colony to consider the several plans and a report mine happened to be preferred and with a few amendments was accordingly reported by this plan the general government was to be administered by a president-general appointed and supported by the crown and a grand council was to be chosen by the representatives of the people of the several colonies met in their respective assemblies the debates upon it in congress went on daily hand in hand with the indian business many objections and difficulties were started but at length they were all overcome and the plan was unanimously agreed to and copies ordered to be transmitted to the board of trade and to the assemblies of the several provinces its fate was singular the assemblies did not adopt it as they all thought there was too much prerogative in it and in england it was judged to have too much of the democratic the board of trade therefore did not approve of it nor recommend it for the approbation of his majesty but another scheme was formed supposed to answer the same purpose better whereby the governors of the provinces with some members of their respective councils were to meet and order the raising of troops building of forts etc and to draw on the treasury of great britain for the expense which was afterward to be refunded by an act of parliament laying a tax on america my plan with my reasons in support of it is to be found among the political papers that are printed being the winter following in boston i had much conversation with governor shirley upon both the plans part of what passed between us on the occasion may also be seen among those papers the different and contrary reasons of dislike to my plan makes me suspect that it was really a true medium and i am still of opinion it would have been happy for both sides the water if it had been adopted the colonies so united would have been sufficiently strong to have defended themselves there would then have been no need of troops from england of course the subsequent pretense for taxing america and the bloody contest it occasioned would have been avoided but such mistakes are not new history is full of the errors of states and princes look round the habitable world how few know their own good or knowing it pursue those who govern having much business on their hands do not generally like to take the trouble of considering and carrying into execution new projects the best public measures are therefore seldom adopted from previous wisdom but forced by the occasion the governor of pennsylvania in sending it down to the assembly expressed his approbation of the plan as appearing to him to be drawn up with great clearness and strength of judgment and therefore recommended it as well worthy of their closest and most serious attention the house however by the management of a certain member 
took it up when I happened to be absent, which I thought not very fair, and reprobated it without paying any attention to it at all, to my no small mortification. End of chapter 14「Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin」Chapter 15 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Edited by Frank Woodworth Pine Chapter 15 Quarrels with the Proprietary Governors In my journey to Boston this year I met at New York with our new governor, Mr. Morris just arrived there from england with whom i had been before intimately acquainted he brought a commission to supersede mr hamilton who tired with the disputes his proprietary instructions subjected him to had resigned mr morris asked me if i thought he must expect as uncomfortable an administration i said no you may on the contrary have a very comfortable one if you will only take care not to enter into any disputes with the assembly my dear friend says he pleasantly how can you advise my avoiding disputes you know i love disputing it is one of my greatest pleasures however to show the regard i have for your counsel i promise you i will if possible avoid them he had some reason for loving to dispute being eloquent an accurate sophister and therefore generally successful in argumentative conversation he had been brought up to it from a boy his father as i have heard accustoming his children to dispute with one another for his diversion while sitting at table after dinner but i think the practice was not wise for in the course of my observation these disputing contradicting and confuting people are generally unfortunate in their affairs they get victory sometimes but they never get good will which would be of more use to them. We parted, he going to Philadelphia, and I to Boston. In returning, I met at New York with the votes of the Assembly, by which it appeared that, notwithstanding his promise to me, he and the House were already in high contention, and it was a continual battle between them as long as he retained the government. I had my share of it, for, as soon as I got back to my seat in the Assembly, I was put on every committee for answering his speeches and messages, and by the committees always desired to make the drafts. Our answers, as well as his messages, were often tart, and sometimes indecently abusive, and as he knew I wrote for the assembly, one might have imagined that when we met we could hardly avoid cutting throats. But he was so good-natured a man that no personal difference between him and me was occasioned by the contest, and we often dined together. One afternoon, in the height of this public quarrel, we met in the street. Franklin, says he, you must go home with me and spend the evening. I am to have some company that you will like. And taking me by the arm, he led me to his house. In gay conversation over our wine after supper, he told us, jokingly, that he much admired the idea of Sancho Panza, who, when it was proposed to give him a government requested it might be a government of blacks, as then, if he could not agree with his people, he might sell them. One of his friends, who sat next to me, says, Franklin, why do you continue to side with these damned Quakers? Had not you better sell them? 
the proprietor would give you a good price the governor says i has not yet blackened them enough he indeed had laboured hard to blacken the assembly in all his messages but they wiped off his colouring as fast as he laid it on them and placed it in return thick upon his own face so that finding he was likely to be negrified himself he as well as mr hamilton grew tired of the contest and quitted the government these public quarrels were all at bottom owing to the proprietaries our hereditary governors who when any expense was to be incurred for the defence of their province with incredible meanness instructed their deputies to pass no act for levying the necessary taxes unless their vast estates were in the same act expressly excused and they had even taken bonds of these deputies to observe such instructions the assemblies for three years held out against this injustice though constrained to bend at last at length captain denny who was governor morris's successor ventured to disobey these instructions how that was brought about i shall show hereafter but i am got forward too fast with my story there are still some transactions to be mentioned that happened during the administration of governor morris war being in a matter commenced with france the government of massachusetts bay projected an attack upon crown point and sent mr quincy to pennsylvania and mr pownall afterward governor pownall to new york to solicit assistance as i was in the assembly knew his temper and was mr quincy's countryman he applied to me for my influence and assistance i dictated his address to them which was well received they voted an aid of ten thousand pounds to be laid out in provisions but the governor refusing this assent to their bill which included this with other sums granted for the use of the crown unless a clause were inserted exempting the proprietary estate from bearing any part of the tax that would be necessary the assembly though very desirous of making their grant to new england effectual were at a loss how to accomplish it mr quincy laboured hard with the governor to obtain his assent but he was obstinate i then suggested a method of doing the business without the governor by order of the trustees of the loan office which by law the assembly had the right of drawing there was indeed little or no money at that time in the office and therefore i proposed that the orders should be payable in a year and to bear an interest of five per cent with these orders i supposed the provisions might easily be purchased the assembly with very little hesitation adopted the proposal the orders were immediately printed and i was one of the committee directed to sign and dispose of them the funds for paying them was the interest of all the paper currency then extant in the province upon loan together with the revenue arising from the excise which being known to be more than sufficient they obtained instant credit and were not only received in payment for the provisions but many moneyed people who had cash lying by them vested in those orders which they found advantageous as they bore interest while upon hand and might on any occasion be used as money so that they were eagerly all bought up and in a few weeks none of them were to be seen thus the important affair was by my means completed mr quincy returned thanks to the assembly in a handsome memorial went home highly pleased 
with this success of his embassy, and ever after bore for me the most cordial and affectionate friendship. End of chapter 15「When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. » When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.